A reading from Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So, he let, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, saying, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you must so that you may see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. You may have a seat. <clears throat> oh, how good is God's word? Just love these stories of encounter. They... It's just this radical transformation. You cannot have an encounter with Christ without your life being completely flipped upside down, completely transformed. The outcome of encounter is transformation. That, that's our goal in this. We're, we're not trying to just um, change the way we think. It, it's interesting, this passage in your Bibles, there, there's little headings over the passage uh, added later just to be helpful. And in this passage, it will often say the conversion of Saul. And conversion, it just doesn't seem like the right word, though, because conversion, when I think conversion, I think converting from one religion to another. Uh, I go from atheism to theism. I go from, uh, you know, Muslim to Christian. But what Saul experiences here is a radical transformation because the outcome of encounter is transformation. Amen? That's what happens. Our lives are completely different. And he has transformation in a number of different ways. First, he has a transformed identity, does he not? His whole identity is flipped upside down. He was a Pharisee. 
He was a persecutor. He was tearing the church apart, and he was defending the Jewish faith. He, he thought he was on the side of God defending the Jewish faith. However, after his encounter with Jesus, his entire self-understanding goes through a transformation. He came to see himself as a servant of Christ and a witness to the risen Lord. His identity becomes inseparable from this new mission. Now, interesting enough, in, in this situation and circumstance, um, I, for, you know, I'm 37 years old, so for about 30, you know, s- seven years, you know, minus three days, I've thought this is the point where, where Saul's name is changed to Paul. I'm like, no, he gets a new identity and he, becomes, he, he goes from Saul to Paul. And I'm reading this passage and I'm like, Jesus keeps calling him Saul and there's no moment of transformation. I just grew up in the church always being, you know, that's one of the names that's changed is Saul's name is changed to Paul. By the way, just so you know, his name has never changed. Okay, some of you guys grew up in church and you're like, I don't think that's accurate. No, read the Bible. I, I, I promise you, I read, I, I read through it again this week and I was like, this is, this is kind of crazy. Like, I, I thought it was changed. He, what it is is Saul, the Hebrew name is Saul, but the Greek name is Paul. It's kind of like Michael and Miguel. There, there's no transformation. I, I, he continues to be called Saul throughout the book of Acts until he leaves Jerusalem and starts going on these foreign missions. But... His identity is completely transformed in this moment. He goes from Pharisee to apostle. He goes from persecutor to proclaimer. He goes from enemy of Christ to family of Jesus. He is given a new identity in this moment. And it's interesting, even in this passage, the first thing he is called after his encounter with Jesus, you know what it is? It's brother. Ananias comes up to him and says, brother Saul, because he is given a new family. And this is the beauty of the gospel, is that Jesus isn't looking for converts to a new religion. He's looking for sons and daughters being welcomed into a new family. That's what he is starting. So he welcomes us in in this way. This is what Jesus wants to do with you. This is, this is, this is our hope. It's not that you would learn like a religious system. Learn new behaviors. Learn to do these. Yet we, we, that's not the goal. The goal is holistic transformation of everything that you are starting with your identity. Now, N.T. Wright, he puts it like this. He says, Saul's conversion was not just a change of mind or heart. It was a revolution of identity. And that's what we need. We need a transformation of our identity. This is so radical for Paul that as Paul goes and preaches and teaches over and over and over as he's writing epistles to the church, he starts with the opening of his letter by speaking to their identity before he ever calls them to a change of behavior. Uh, You read uh, Ephesians, right? Uh, It's six chapters, Ephesians one through three. This is who you are in Christ. You are adopted. You are made new. You are brought in. You are sons and daughters of the risen Christ. This is who you are. Therefore, if this is who you are, Now go walk in newness of life. Now go walk in a new way. This is what encounter does. It transforms us, radically transforms us. Look how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. The outcome of encounter is transformation. So you get a transformed identity, but you also get a transformed purpose. The purpose of Saul's life, of Paul's life, 
radically changes from, from here on out. He was actively trying to suppress the Christian movement, viewing it as a threat to Judaism, and he goes through this radical transformation. He becomes one of the most zealous advocates and missionaries. His purpose shifted from persecution to proclamation of the gospel, even at great personal cost. I always think about this scene, this moment, right? Okay, this is not in the Bible. I'm going to step away from my Bible for a second. But this is like what I picture in my head, okay? It's not, it's not full-on heretical, I promise. But it's just like, because this didn't happen. But I picture, you know, they're, they're plant, the, the story of Acts is the story of the church being planted, right? And Jesus, he sends his disciples, he sends the apostles, and he says, go to the ends of the earth, making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you, right? And so Jesus and the Father are like hanging out in heaven, Holy Spirit's down on earth, like doing his thing, right? And so they're like, the Father comes to Jesus and he's like, so um, you sent them, right? You, you commissioned them, right? He's like, Dad, I did, right? I told him to go. He's like, why aren't they doing anything? Like, well, they're just sitting in Jerusalem. Like, well, didn't they replace Judas? They got a new guy, right? Who'd they get? Matthias? What's he doing? I, I, nothing, right? <laughs> like, you don't ever read about him again. Like, how'd they pick him? They rolled dice, you know, okay? He's like, what if we picked one? What if we picked a new guy? Okay. What about that guy right there? Saul of Tarsus? Are you kidding me? Like, he's persecuting the church. He's rallying all these people to, to kill the movement and, and, and going against the way and all these kind of things. And the father's like, yeah, but look at him go, you know? Like, what if we got that guy on our team? Okay, now that didn't happen, but it kind of does, right? They see Saul and they see this movement and they're like, what if there was a radical trend? What if we got that guy and gave him a new identity and a new purpose and and his life is transformed and the gospel explodes. This is a moment in time for the church, a beautiful, radical moment in time. So how do we have our identity and our purpose radically transformed? Let me tell you how. Um, we have an encounter with grace. This is what happens to Saul here. He has an encounter with grace in the person of Jesus Christ. See, we think often... Um, when we look at our lives, our lives, um, we either are shaped by pride in our accomplishment or shame in our failures. Oh, look at all the amazing things I did. This is my identity. Or we feel shame over the areas that we fall short. And here's the truth. Pride and shame, they are just two opposite ingredients of the same poison. Pride and shame are two opposite ingredients of the same poison. And the antidote is not found in diminishing our accomplishments or celebrating our failures. We, we live in a culture that loves to celebrate our failures, right? What, do we, what is the motto of our culture? It's no regrets, right? And then people never admit they regret anything. They'll literally get a tattoo that says no regrets. It'll be misspelled. It'll say no regrets. And they're like, yeah, no regrets, bro. You know? I'm like, you should regret that, you know? And so we just, you're like, no, I don't regret any, you know, anything. But that is, that is not what we need. The antidote to both pride and shame, you know what it is? You guys, it's grace. It's the grace of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. And this story of Paul's transformation is a story of an encounter with God's redeeming grace, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul 
encounters grace and he's never the same. So this is what I want, I want to look at grace, but I want to look at it through the lens of this passage. And so I'm going to do something that I've never done in nine and a half years here preaching at Rise City Church. Um, I'm going to use an acronym. And those of you guys who know me, you know how much I hate acronyms, probably because I grew up in a Baptist church where everything was an acronym. They were as common as Michael W. Smith songs. Like, it was everywhere, right? You know? Like, when I was in high school, it was HSM, high school ministry. And I'm in SALT, students active in leadership training. It was just everywhere. Everything was an acronym. So you had to, like, be on the inside of these things. But I started working my way through this passage, and I was like... They got through the first few, and I'm like, man, this, as I look at grace, like, it really does fit this acronym. So those of you guys uh, who have been here for a while, um, you know this is the first and last. Those of you who are brand new, um, I just want to apologize ahead of time for my actions, but you're getting an acronym today, all right? Here's how we can understand grace through this passage. First, uh, grace greets us at our lowest. Grace relentlessly pursues sinners. Grace allows us to see the light. Grace can only be found in Jesus. And grace even redeems our worst histories. Now, you know that fifth one was a stretch, but by that point, I was getting the sleeping bag back in the box. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm gonna make this fit. But the text here, what we pull from it, this is so beautiful. I want you to look at this with me. First, grace greets us at our lowest. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Here's the thing. Um, We think what we're gonna be met with at our lowest points of sin and failure is condemnation. That's why we run and hide. That's why we never open up. It's from the opening pages of the Bible, the very first sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They sin, and what is their immediate response? Is it to turn to God's grace and hope and redemption? No, they run and hide. And for generation after generation ever since, we've been running and hide hiding to. And the reason we run and hide is because we think we're going to be met with condemnation. And on the road to Damascus, instead of executing judgment, Jesus actually pours out unspeakable grace upon Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul should be dead in that moment, Jesus is going to choose to resurrect his purpose and his identity. And what we need is we need to be a people that fall upon the grace of Jesus over and over. Because that becomes what shapes us. So many of us, we learn these foundational um, responses as kids. I I think about my upbringing, right? I I had two amazing, wonderful parents. I love my parents. Um, One of my parents had more grace than the other, right? Uh, My mom was full of grace. My dad, I was nervous to hold the flashlight incorrectly. You know what I'm talking about? Like, he asks you for help, and you're, like, shaking. He's like, why are you shaking so much? I don't know. I'm just... I'm scared I'm doing it wrong, you know, right? He's like, well, you are. You know, I'm like, exactly. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, this is like a public counseling session right now. Okay. My mom, though, man, my mom was so full of grace. It was incredible. I had this moment. I was like eight or nine years old. That just shaped me. I, uh, my, one of my favorite activities was indoor basketball. Not like indoor real basketball, but, you know, like the little neon hoops you put in the back of the door and like a foam basketball. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, and there was a room in the house that was better than all the other rooms. You know what it was? My parents' room. It was bigger. It was wider. You could jump off the wall and dunk. Like, and so when my parents were gone, I would move my basketball hoop from my room to their room, and I would turn into Sean Kemp for like 10 minutes. It was, I, was amazing. I was amazing. I was incredible. But of course, one day, playing basketball in my parents' room, 
Um, the basketball goes flying against the wall, hits the lamp by my mom's, on my mom's nightstand, and falls to the ground and breaks. And I'm, I'm terrified in this moment because I have to explain why I'm playing basketball in their room and explain this happening. And I just, I, I'll never forget this moment. My mom sat on the bed next to me, told me to sit next to her, and we look at this broken lamp, and she just points at it, and she goes, Jason, I love you more than I love that lamp. That shaped me. So much so that as a parent now, when my kids do something, I've had these moments where something breaks, and you know, your initial reaction is like, quit a horse playing, you know? But like, I'm like, no, like, and I sit, I sit my son down, because he gets all kinds of shame when, when, when he makes a mistake and he runs and hides in his room and I'll, and I'll go and I'll be like, Dax, when I was a little boy, and I'll tell him the story of the lamp. And I, and I tell him, no matter what he breaks, I, I just look at him and I just repeat my mom's words to him. I said, Dax, I love you more than the lamp. And he knows what it means. So much so that even like, you know, a, a few months ago, he actually broke a lamp, right? And he goes and runs down, you know, and I'm down there and I'm like, Dax. And he goes, I know when you were a little boy, right? <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's not what I was gonna say. I was gonna say that lamp that you just broke is the lamp my mom gave me, you know? And you just, he's like, what? I'm like, no, it was Goodwill, right, you know? <laughs> but I had you there for a second, you know what I'm saying? It's become this like pattern. Jesus shows up to Saul and he pours out unspeakable grace. He says, I love you more than the brokenness that you're causing, and I want to redeem. And this is important, you guys, because what saves us is what drives us. And here's what I mean by that. There are all kinds of, all kinds of people who think what saves them is right theology, or what saves them is right behavior. And if you think right theology or, or right behavior, which are both really good, th- we're pro, we're a church, we're pro those things, okay? Those are good things, but that's not what saves you. What saves you is the grace of Jesus by grace through faith. That's what saves you. But if you think right behavior is what saves you, then you're gonna cause all kinds of destruction trying to get other people to behave rightly. If you think right thinking is what saves you, you're gonna cause all kinds of destruction trying to get people to think and believe rightly. No, belief, the only right belief is Jesus Christ. Hung upon a cross, buried, raised three days later. That is what saves. It's by grace through faith. And we know this because Paul, from this moment, becomes a preacher of grace. Constantly. He does not build his ministry upon his pride or his accomplishment or his zeal but he becomes a theologian of grace. This is what he writes in 1 Timothy as he's training a young pastor. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What saved Paul is what then drives Paul. See, grace is not condemnation. Grace is what actually greets us at our lowest. Second, uh, grace relentlessly pursues sinners. I, I need you to understand, theologically, Saul wasn't seeking salvation. Saul wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking him. 
He was pursuing after Christians to persecute them. Meanwhile, Jesus is pursuing after him. This is a powerful moment. One theologian said, Saul did not find God. God found him. God came after Saul, okay? We'll say these things like, oh man, I found Jesus. Look, you didn't find Jesus. You were blind, naked, lost, and dead. You didn't find nobody. Jesus found you. But that is the beauty of grace, is it pursues after us. It's seeking after us even when we are not seeking after him. And I need you to hear this today. Like, if you, I just had a conversation this morning. Somebody, and we're brand new to church. Like, we're trying to figure this out. We've never been a part of it. I, and I, God is seeking after them. And if you are here today, this morning, God is seeking after you. And if you have grown up in church and been following him your whole life, guess what? He's still seeking you. There's no way that you can run from the grace of Jesus, but you have to surrender to it. You have to humble yourself and you have to repent of your brokenness and be like, Jesus is the only way, not my righteousness. Man, I I remember when I was going into seventh grade and I was at camp that summer. I went to Hume Lake Camp down in California. And and the only thing I cared more about in camp was fitting in with the cool kids. And so I got in these guys in my cabin, and they were the cool kids. And they cared about basketball, soda, and girls, and in that order for some reason, right? And they, they were too cool for everything. They were making fun of everything. So I was like, I wanted to fit in. So I just start making fun of everything. Oh, yeah, this is so lame. I can't believe we're here. And I kid you not, we're literally going through camp just like making fun of stuff. And there was a, they were getting ready for that night session. And so we snuck, it was an auditorium like this, we snuck in the back of the room, we're sitting in the bleachers in the dark, and we're watching them like practice getting ready for the session, and we're just like to each other, just snickering and making fun and whispering, and we're like, oh, this is so dumb. And they were practicing a skit, okay? It was this pantomime of the gospel, kind of um, later became known as the Lifehouse skit, maybe some of you guys have seen it, right? First time I ever saw it in my life was this practice run-through of it. And I'm sitting there with these guys and just snickering, making fun of it. And the premise of this skit is God creates man, creates him for a relationship, and then he goes off and starts experiencing the world, and 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 he turns to, rather than turning to God, he starts turning to all kinds of other things, substance, partying, money, women, all these things, and then these things turn on him. And we're like, this is so cheesy, like, oh yeah, the world's so bad, right? And then God freezes everything. And I just, I literally remember this moment like, oh, here's the, here's the cheesy Christian part where God starts beating up sin, which I don't know why that was my theology. Like God shows up and starts beating things up like a superhero. But that was, right? That's what I thought was gonna happen. But that's not what happens. God freezes everything, takes the man out of the arms of these sins, these enemies, takes him aside, and puts himself in that place, and then begins to get beat. And that was the moment I understood the gospel. I'm trying to make fun of this practice skit, snickering with my friends, and I'm in tears, wrecked by God's grace. I finally understood the gospel. Why? Because grace was pursuing after me, even though I was not pursuing it. This is the beauty of grace. Comes after us. If we would but surrender to his goodness, God is pursuing you over and over. Stop trying to hide in your shame. Stop trying to hide in your guilt. Stop trying to build pride on your accomplishment and surrender over to the grace of Jesus. Third grace allows us to see the light. Brother Saul, Jesus has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. This is a transformative moment. See, we use grace often as a term that means um, we're not gonna hold you accountable for what you did. Hey, and, and we even say that, like, hey, just show me a little grace, right? Show me a little grace. It, it, it's, it's a bad use of the word. Sorry I punched you in the face. Please show me some grace, right? It, it, that, that's not what grace is biblically. Biblical grace is when God intervenes to no longer let us live in darkness. That's the grace of God showing up. Showing up and saying, no, the scales need to be removed from your eyes. You need to experience this movement from blindness to sight, from darkness to light. And this picture here with Saul, it holds theological significance for every single one of us. Saul's blindness, it symbolized his spiritual darkness and God's illuminating the glory of Christ symbolizes the truth that he finally sees. He finally sees, no, Jesus is what he's been looking for. Jesus is the risen Messiah. And there's this movement here. And so Saul's self-righteousness, it's actually shattered in this moment. And it's replaced by the brilliance of God's grace and the glory of his son, Jesus. This is what grace does. It allows us to see, it's like this lens that allows us to see all the world differently, to see truth differently, to see relationships differently, to see purpose differently. It's like we're walking around and everything is just black and white and muddy and grace comes in and we see things in a different way. Have you ever heard of those those glasses, they're called enchroma glasses. They're for people who are colorblind. They're actually a filter in these glasses that allow, because people who are colorblind, it, it, they often describe it as, as everything looks like mud. Everything kind of just blends together. Like I look around this room and I just see the vibrance of this room. I'm like, oh, it's fall. Like the flannels are out, you know? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's like a vibrance to it. It's, just, it's beautiful. But if it's just like, if it's just mud, if it's just grayscale, you're, you're missing. And so you'll see or hear or watch story after story of these people um, buying these colorblind glasses for their loved ones. And I, I, and I want to watch one of these together because um, this one is of a 66-year-old man. He's a bodybuilder, right? And it, you can tell like, it's his birthday, and you can tell, like, once you're 66, you're like, you don't care what you get for your birthday. You know, you're like, okay, here we go. Let's do, let's take the picture. Let's, I want you to watch this man transform as he has this experience of moving from darkness to light, of moving from colorblind to color. And, and, and it's about 90 seconds, so we're going we're gonna to watch it together. Happy birthday, dear daddy. Yeah, okay. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> How old are you now? <laughs> oh, there's there's something for you to open. How does it look? Oh, that's weird. Look at the balloons. <laughs> Can you see with our eyes now, baby? Can you, what colors you see? Those. Those. You see colors now? Oh, the tree 
<laughs> now you have rose-colored glasses, baby. <laughs> now you see with our eyes. <laughs> oh my goodness. It doesn't look like mud. <laughs> That's the power of grace. You get to see everything differently. You get to see love, forgiveness, redemption, restoration in a different way. This is what happens to, to Saul in this moment. He goes from darkness to light. And this is what grace does for us. As he later writes in 2 Corinthians, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He's saying because of grace, we can see all of life through an eternal perspective. We see it drastically differently. How's the old song go? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That is amazing grace, is it not? This is the beauty of the gospel. Grace is what opens our eyes to see the beauty of God's truth. Who Jesus really is. That he's real. That he's resurrected. That he is Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He brings color to our souls that have been wandering around in darkness for way too long. But here's the thing. Grace can only be found in Jesus. It says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Here's our problem. We, even us in the church, even if we grew up in church, we're always trying to find salvation and grace in ourselves. No, I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to do more. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to stop doing that behavior. I'm going to make myself lovable. I'm going to make myself likable. I'm going to make myself wanted by God. That's not grace. That's actually pride. That's self-idolatry. This is why Paul writes in Philippians. This is, look, at what, look at what he says. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he's going to give his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. This is my resume. I, am, I have lived what it means to be a good Jewish person over and over. I, I, I have been righteous, but this is what he says. He moves to the gospel. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's my resume. You know what I consider? I consider it garbage. And now, here's what's interesting about this word that I highlighted here. Um, this is an important word. Only time it's used in scripture. It's the word skubalon, okay? And if you were a Greek-speaking biblical times follower, um, you would be very offended that I just said the word skubalon on stage. We'll probably have to censor that on YouTube later, right? 
Um, it's a foul word. It doesn't actually mean garbage. Um, it, it is a vulgar word for excrement. I'm not going to say it on stage, okay? Intentionally, <laughs> okay? It, it's, it's like worse than crap. I think you guys are tracking with me on this, okay? You know, because like we we kind of get it, okay? We we, we kind of get it. But theologians like argue the significance of this word. I want I want you to see this here, okay? Paul tells his readers that all the things of religious value in his former life are regarded to him now as scubalone. That is crap, okay? This is this is a theological textbook right here that that, that writes this. This is so good. You just have to see this. Well, liberals, neo-orthodox, post-liberals, feminists, historians, Methodists, and other heretics. That's quite the list. Hope you don't fit that. Uh, may feel obligated to remove crap from the Bible by flushing it away with euphemisms such as rubbish and refuse. Evangelicals who believe every word is inspired by God should refuse to flush. <laughs> Instead, we should embrace a translation that conveys the rhetorical effect intended by the author as crass and base as it may seem to our perhaps overly pious ears. This is a theology Theology professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the most renowned seminaries uh, in the country. And you know this guy is fun at parties, right? You know what I'm saying? I don't care what those post-liberal neo-Orthodox Methodists say. If the Bible says crap, I'm going to say crap, and I don't give a doohickey who says it, right? You know, right? this guy. But here's the thing, okay? <clears throat> as weird as this guy is, he has a point. And what Paul is saying is all my self-righteousness, all my goodness, all my following the law, all my knowing the right things, all, all of this, it is a bunch of crap compared to knowing Christ. It is scuba alone compared to the grace of Jesus. I'm not gonna build my life upon that. I'm gonna build it on Jesus. And that is the call that I have for you. Would you build your life your salvation, your identity, your purpose on Jesus and nothing else. Your list, it's a bunch of garbage. It's a bunch of crap. It gets you nowhere and nothing. But the grace of Jesus gets you everything. And so let's build our lives upon it because grace even redeems our worst histories, even our worst moments in life. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Ananias is scared. He's like, you're kidding me? You're sending Saul here? But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Jesus has a deeper purpose. And the disciples are like, no, 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 this guy is disqualified. He can't be a part of us. He can never be redeemed or restored. And Jesus is like, exactly his past is what I'm going to use to propel him forward in his future. It's laying a groundwork. See, Saul is called and saved, and all his passion and his zeal and his fervor is not erased, but it's actually redeemed. The same zeal, he once hunted down Christians to kill them. He now hunts down the lost to save them. The same galvanizing force that he was once to rally Jews against the followers of the way, he now rallies Christians to go and plant churches. His past is being redeemed, you see this? The same passion he once had for the precision of the law, he now has for the power of the gospel. So his past is not erased. It's resurrected and it's redeemed. 
Because Jesus does not want to erase your past. He wants to redeem it. That is the power of the gospel. We think his past disqualified him for future ministry. What we learn through the power of Jesus is his past actually prepared him for future ministry. Because of the things that you've gone through, the ways you've suffered, even the mistakes you've made, if you could confess, repent, and surrender them to Christ, he's going to use them to write a new story. And you could speak a different language because of your pain. You could speak a different language because of your suffering, if you would but put it in the hands of Christ. This is one of my favorite stories, is my friends Andre and Julie Stickney. Um, and I went onto Julie's Facebook this week, and I stole some of her prom pictures from Andre and Julie. Those of you guys who know Andre and Julie, you know they look exactly the same now, even though they're in their 40s. And uh, they've been connected since they were in middle school, going to proms together in high school. And they have a testimony. They have a story. Like, you can't go through Gresham like hanging out with them, if you're with them in Gresham, people are constantly coming up like, Andre and Julie, because of their party days. Like they came over to my house, first thing they said was like, they're like, we know that neighbor back there. I'm like, why? They're like, that's where we used to party in high school. I'm like, you guys are sinners. You're the worst, right? <laughs> they didn't know the Lord, but they grew up here. They were deeply connected. And then God's radical grace saved them and redeemed them and restored them. And here's the thing. God is using all of that history, all of those moments, all of that connectedness that they had in this city, and they are vessels of grace. Uh, this is them now. They look exactly the same. <laughs> Andre still gets carded for movies, okay? And they're leading our marriage team. And now you go throughout our city, and there is marriage after marriage that has been restored through their story. There are people, many and even in this room, your connection to this getting plugged into church was Andre and Julie because they're a story of redemption. See, this moment for Saul, it was one of the most critical moments in the church. The resurrection of Jesus the sending of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of Saul. And everything else hinges on those, everything hinges on those moments and propels them forward. It was a pivotal moment in the church with Saul getting called and restored and resurrected because he, and redeemed because he points to the resurrection. He builds on the Spirit. Like, what if that was you? Like, what if you where this hinge point in our church's story, or our city's story, or our world's story, because you finally surrendered. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, the gospel gives us a pair of spectacles through which we can review our own lives and see God preparing us and shaping us, even through our own failures and sins, to become vessels of his grace in the world. You know what God wants for you? He wants you to be a vessel of his grace. He wants to use all the brokenness of your past, not to glorify it, not to celebrate it. He wants to redeem it. If you would repent, give it to him, 
surrender to his lordship, you have no idea how God wants to use you as a radical vessel of grace. Lord, we thank you for this story of this encounter that our brother Saul had. Lord, would we have that kind of encounter with you? Would we experience your grace in a radical and powerful way? Would you open our eyes to see differently because of grace? When we are overcome with our guilt and our shame and our brokenness, would we not try to hide from your condemnation? Would we fall upon your grace? And Lord, would that be what drives us? Would it be the story that propels us forward? Because we've received your grace, we want to be vessels of your grace. We want to be witnesses of your grace. We want to be built upon your grace. We want to celebrate your grace. And because of your grace, Lord, would you just be lifted up and glorified. And so we worship you here. Change, transform our identity, our purpose, our calling. And would it all be for your glory. We pray this in your son's name.